Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. We think of worship here in the confines of church and godly people. It needs to be something that spills into the rest of our lives. Because the Bible says people that well up with this gratitude, this heart of thanksgiving, they're not just doing it in church, they're declaring His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Is that a pattern of your life? When you think about worship, what comes to mind? Is it singing in church? Is it an action or a lifestyle? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is looking to the example set by David in 2 Samuel. For David, worship was a part of who he was, and he stayed focused on the fact that everything he accomplished was because of God. Nothing he achieved was by his own strength, and the same is true for us. Well, let's dive in. There's something about this topic in 2 Samuel 7 that God is the God who promises to David that I give you everything. And if you want to repay me, if you want to settle the score, if you want to make it even, if you think you can buy my love or in some way do something that would merit my goodness in your life, you're kidding yourself. As a matter of fact, you think you can pay me back, forget it. I'm going to give you even more. And I'm going to show you that it's all about me and it's not about you. And there's an interesting thing that happens in the second half of this chapter, and I hope you'd turn there. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in, in verse number 17, as Nathan comes in and explains everything to David that God had revealed to him about the fact that, David, you can't do anything for me that would impress me. I'm God. Don't forget that. I do everything for you, and you need to be amazed because I got a lot more that I'm going to do for you, and that ought to blow your mind. As Nathan reveals all of this prophecy to David, he shrinks in his own mind, in his own eyes, and he says, wow, grace, that kind of grace is amazing. We see David quickly shifts from thinking of himself to thinking of God in verse 22. Enough of who am I and who's my family. He says in verse 22, how great you are. That's the focus of the Christian. That's the focus of the person that grasps grace. God, you're great. The attention of my life should shift and quickly deflect to you. Oh, sovereign Lord, there's none like you. There is no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. Look at all these direct comments directed specifically to God. You are great. There's no one but you. There's no one like you. And David says, you're a great God. And he tells him that specifically and directly. He shifts the attention from himself to God, and he starts telling God he's great, and that's what we need to do. If we really grasp grace, tell God he's great. David's humble, and we need to be humble. We see in verses 22 through 24 that he's actively telling God he's great, and he's not waiting for Sunday to do it. He doesn't need a worship song to do it. But look, at, if you would, at verse 25. The Concentric circle, in a sense, it, it widens. His focus broadens just a bit. As he says, Now, Yahweh God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've promised so that your name will be great forever. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Do as you've promised so that your name will be great forever. I mean, isn't God great? I mean, he's great no matter what. He's, he's awesome. He's perfect. What are you saying that for? 
Well, it's not that it will be any greater. It's just that people will recognize it. Look at verse 26, middle of it. Then men will say, Yahweh Almighty is God over Israel. In the house of your servant David, it'll be established before you. In other words, when you fulfill the promises and you do these gracious things toward me, you do good in my life that I don't deserve. You know what? I'm concerned that people out there recognize it. You see, another thing about people who really understand grace is that they are passionate about the reputation that God has outside their little small group, outside the walls of their church. They're concerned not only with telling God that He's great, which is what worship is all about. These people who understand grace are concerned about telling others that God is great. And if you're taking notes, that'd be the third thing worth jotting down, that we as Christians, if we were to get this concept of grace in the fiber of our being, that we would perhaps be more anxious to tell others God is great. And that's what we need to do. If we really know grace, if we want to respond rightly to grace, we need to start making sure people know that God is doing for us what we don't deserve. And you know what? It'll make people scratch their heads. I mean, you go into your office and you start talking to your coworkers about the fact that you're really in awe and enamored with the fact that God would give you the good things He's given you. It may give you a weird reputation. But you know what? Aren't you more concerned with His reputation in their minds than your reputation in their minds? And when His reputation becomes more important than my reputation, then I start telling people, because I'm convinced He's good to me and I don't deserve it, and I start putting that on display. And David says, I can't wait till you fulfill these promises. Man, do it, because people are going to see it, and people are going to know you're a great, almighty, powerful, giving, gracious God, and I really want people to see that. Keep your finger here and turn over to the psalmist as he put it in words that are Real poignant for us, I think, and helpful. Psalm 96. Psalm 96 gives us, I think, the broadest perspective on worship. We think of worship here in the confines of church or in the confines of our families or our church groups. But, you know, the concept of ascribing to God the worth and glory that He has needs to be something that is happening all outside of the confines of the church and godly people. It needs to be something that spills into the rest of our lives. And I think it will without much effort if we are enamored with His grace. Look at verse 3. It says, declare, let it get out, state it emphatically, speak forthrightly about it. Declare His glory in your small groups and church services. See there what it says? No, declare His glory among the nations and His marvelous deeds that you're so tuned into because you really look for the grace of God in your life. Tell those to, to people that, that, that you think you won't offend by it and that might listen. Do you see that there in the bottom of verse 3? No, Pastor Mike, that's not there. It says, tell His marvelous deeds among... There's a little word there. It's pretty powerful. How many people? All people. That means that you just don't fill in your tight buddies at the office that you're saved. The real issue for you, and it should be a point of conviction, is if, God forbid, there would be someone at your workplace who doesn't know that you're saved. If there would, by some chance, be someone that you rub shoulders with in the, in the lunchroom that perhaps doesn't know that you're really enamored with the fact that God gives you what you don't deserve. 
The thing that should frighten you is that there might be a neighbor in your neighborhood, on your block, who lives across the street from you, someone you you share a fence with that doesn't really recognize that you feel so indebted to a God who has given you everything. That ought to be the thing that, that freaks us out because the Bible says people that well up with this gratitude, this heart of thanksgiving, they're not just doing it in church. They're declaring His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Is that a pattern of your life? Maybe there's a couple of initials you could jot down right now of people in your workaday world, in your office, in your cubicle, in your company, in your neighborhood that, that would really not have a clue if I went up to them and asked them. So tell me about this person. They wouldn't ever mention that, you know, they're really just fixated on the fact that they think God is great and they're constantly talking about it. We need to say, you know, we're going to break down these little barriers and these little areas in our lives that are dominated by fear. We're going to have them dominated by grace. And when they're dominated by grace, then I'm so indebted to God's goodness in my life, i got to tell people about it. And we start to be that Jesus freak we feared we might become. You know what I'm saying? We're talking to others about Christ. It becomes the, the topic of conversation because we recognize He's great and we're not and He's given to me as though I am. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And we tell people, we tell all peoples, we say among the nations, like verse 10 says, the Lord reigns. He's so good. And he does so much for us. The world is firmly established. It can't be moved. He'll judge the world with equity. And it's not just a feel-good message. It's not just wearing a button that says Jesus loves you. It's the whole message of unworthiness before God, his coming judgment, and the fact that we can be forgiven. That's the message. It scares us when we put words on it like evangelism. But I mean, really, isn't that what it's all about? When people are filled and enamored with grace, they're not only humble, they not only worship a lot, they're active in telling people about how great God is. And David shows this concern. I want, I want men to say it. I, I want people to see it as you fulfill this promise of being gracious in my life. But then look back in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 7 and notice how he wraps this up with almost, as some commentators have put it, an, an audacious ending, uh, an ending that is, that is so bold and so confident that, that it's kind of odd almost if we didn't really catch the context. It's almost offensive if we, we didn't know that it came in the context of someone who really understood grace. But the text says in verse 27, O Yahweh Almighty God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found, here's a key word, courage, and there's no doubt that this prayer reflects courage, particularly the second half of it. I've, I found courage to offer you this prayer. Oh, sovereign Yahweh, you're God, and your words are trustworthy. Key Hebrew word. It, it, they're firm, they're established, they're true, they're unbreakable. And you've promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O oh, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant, underline it, will be blessed forever. Think about that. God, this is going to happen, and I know it, and I'm confident, and I'm sure. People that really understand grace, whose hearts are, are really gripped by the fact that I bring nothing to the equation but sin and, and unrighteousness. And he brings everything else that's needed. He brings righteousness and forgiveness that I'm unworthy, but yet he pours on me and lavishes on me his love and his grace, then you know what? They're not only humble, they not only worship a lot, they not only evangelize people. But this may seem like an odd point, but the last thing on your outline, number four, they're confident. And you and I, if we understand grace, need to be confident. 
And I'll tell you what, that's an element that's missing in most people's religious experience. Because the church leaders in our day and all through time who have offered a false gospel have tried to tell people, be good enough and hopefully God will accept you. He'll put all your works on a big scale and he'll see if they weigh out. So you need to be good, be good, be good, because then that'll tilt the scale in the direction of acceptance and maybe one day God will usher you into his presence. And if perhaps you die with too much bad on your account, God will put you in a place where you can work off the rest of it. So hopefully you'll get to a place one day where you'll be acceptable in his sight. Do you know what that shows? That shows an utter lack of a misunderstanding of what grace is all about. And you know what it leads to? It doesn't lead to confidence. It leads to uncertainty. It doesn't lead to boldness before God. It leads to fear that perhaps, you know, maybe I didn't do enough good things this week. And maybe my life and that sin that I committed last month or last week, maybe that'll disqualify me. And maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Maybe he doesn't accept me this week. But he, I know he accepted me the week before because it was really good that week. But that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. David says, look at it again in verse number 28. He says, you're in the middle of it, your words are trustworthy. He says in the bottom of verse 29, middle of verse 29, oh, sovereign Lord, you have spoken. And with your blessing, which he has given, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. He's confident. Keep your finger here. Turn over to one more passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, let me just tell you that this will be a characteristic of people that understand grace that will be inspirational. It'll be, it'll be attractive. It'll be, it'll be desirable to those around you that are trying to please God by their own efforts, doing enough good things to be accepted, bound up in their religious systems that tell them maybe if you do this, that'll work. Maybe if you do that, that'll work. Maybe if you do enough of these, that'll work. Forget all that. People that understand grace, they don't have fear. They're not quivocating. They don't think, oh, I hope I go to heaven when I die. They say, I'm confident. Look at this passage, Hebrews chapter 10. Drop down to verse 19. Some huge words here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, remember, the most holy place was the inner sanctum of the temple that David's son would eventually build, the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. It was the place where this box that the guy who touched it earlier in our story ended up falling dead on the ground. It was the place where only the high priest once a year on the day of Yom Kippur would walk in and do his religious service there. And since no one wanted to go in and get, you know, Sam if he fell down dead because there was sin in his life, apparently they used to tie a rope to his ankle so that when he went in, if they didn't hear from him for a while, they could drag him out by his foot. That was how awesome it was to step into the, the symbolic presence of God in this place called the sanctuary where the Holy of Holies was. And here's what he says, we, we march in how? Confidently. Can you believe that? Not a Jew could not ever believe that. We, we go confidently into the, the most holy place? Yeah, but here's the reason why. By the blood of Jesus. Jesus hung on a cross. I told you this last week. He looked at a criminal who'd done nothing good in his life, right? His life was filled with, with crime and debauchery, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, blowing everybody's paradigm about good works theology. Right there, right? Today, not after millions of years in a place where you burn off your sin, not after you get down off that cross and live and, and, and do a lot of good things that'll make you acceptable. He looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Picture of grace. That picture of grace was enough based on the trustworthiness of Christ's words, for that criminal to stand there and look at any rabbi, any priest, any scribe, any Pharisee, and say, today I'm going to heaven. Uh, well, how can you say that? You can't be sure. I'm sure. Why? Because he said so. He said, I'm going, and I'm going. 
The religious systems of this world give no one in their little works-oriented theology that kind of confidence. But the Bible does and says we can march right into the presence of God by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way that was opened up for us because we were so good. Do you see that in verse 20? Are you still awake? No, not because we were so good, but through this curtain that was ripped and torn. That is his body. His body was broken so my sin could be attributed to him. His life was lived for 33 years so it could be attributed to me. And the text says, and since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with, underscored, a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Confidence. I'm, I'm confident. Having our hearts sprinkled clean, cleansed from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed. Because, here's the reason, for he who promised is trustworthy. He's faithful. If he says it, it's true. Now, David would have a problem with this because in chapter 11, he commits adultery, then he commits murder. And according to Psalm 51, he retreats in repentance after Nathan confronts him and he says, oh God, don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He was doubting. You know what I would have liked to have done at that moment in his life? Bring in this promise. Hey, Dave, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember this? The one you said, hey, God, you know your servant. Yeah, he did know and he knew this day was coming. And you know what? It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for him. Should we do for God? You bet we should. Grace doesn't get off, off the hook of serving God. We serve God, but not with any thoughts of slipping a quarter into the pocket of the billionaire. It doesn't work that way, right? We can't pay him back. But we, as surrendered subjects in the kingdom, say, God, whatever you want me to do, because I'm indebted to you forever. You're a great God. I'm nothing. You're everything. I'm small. You're big. You're great. I don't want to tell everybody about that, but you know what? Because of your word and what you've promised, I'm confident, and I stand on this promise confidently. And sometimes in the midst of our sin and our failure, we stand in the mirror and we look at ourselves and we say, God could never love me because look at what I've done. Do you think he didn't know that when he saved you? You think he didn't know that when you came to him in repentance and faith for the first time? You think he didn't realize the failures of the last month or year of your life? You think he didn't realize that? He realized it. And he said, you know what? Maybe I picked you <laughs> with all your lack of discipline and all your problems because I wanted to prove to everyone else, just like I picked that thief on a cross, it is all about me and it is not about you. It's not what you can do for me. It's what I've already done for you. David was confident and you and I need to be confident, though it's misunderstood by some religious people in our culture and they think, oh, how could you? are so arrogant. You think you're so righteous. And that's the point. We, we know we're not. You see, we know we never could please God. That's why we're so confident because God had to defer to his son and his son did the work for us. That's the good news. That's the good news. That's called the gospel. That's the good news of Christ. So do whatever we want now. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. No. What did Paul say? Romans chapter six. So what do we do? Six one, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. No, that's not a good idea. He says, may it never be. And then he goes on to explain the whole difference that takes place in the person who has confidence in Christ. When they repent of sins and put trust in Christ, it transforms who they are. And you know what? You know that if you are someone who understands grace, that it does not give us a license to do what we want. It just gives us a confidence to believe that it's about him and not us. And it almost drives us with even more passion to be available to do and be whatever God wants us to be. Isaac Watts put it well when he said, when I survey the wondrous cross, 
upon which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Last verse is so good. He said, were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Oh, we're not saying that we're not indebted to Christ. We're not saying that our hearts shouldn't beat with a desire to live holy and obedient lives. Of course, you know better than that. But all it means is when a push comes to shove and it comes down to it, God is the God who gives everything. I'm the person who can give nothing to merit or earn or repay his favor. And so I stand humbled before God, praising him and his works, telling others how great God is, but confident on his promise. Not on my life, on his promise. That is the response to grace that God would love to see in each of our hearts. And it's qualitatively different from all the other folks trying to please God by their own good deeds. That's grace. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for ever thinking in our twisted way that we could somehow do some good things that might earn your favor. In some way, we might, we might do something that you might be impressed with and pay us back for. Oh, God, let us recognize that we're nothing, that grace is so great that it would reach down and save wretches like us. And God, I know that humility is the thing that opens this up because it leads us to repentance and faith. But God, once we've encountered and experienced for the first time the grace of God, continue in our lives that work of humility. Let us recognize that if we started with this concept of grace, we'd be foolish to think now we would continue it with some pattern of merit and earning and repaying. We can't. It's about grace at the beginning. It's about grace now. And it'll be about grace at the very end because you're a giving God who's provided it all. God, let us celebrate that with our words and our thoughts and our minds and our songs. Let us tell the people in our workspace and our neighborhoods, the people that surround us, and God, let us be confident that if you said it, we're not going to let our emotions steer us from it. We're not going to let our circumstances change our heart. We're fixated on the truth of your promise. And if you said it, then God, we're going to be blessed. Thank you so much for the promise that applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, amen. It was about grace at the beginning. It's about grace now, and it will be about grace at the very end. You're listening to Focal Point in a series called Lessons on Grace from Pastor Mike Fabares. To review the study notes for today's message or to listen again, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the sermon called What to Do When God Has Done Everything. We're so glad to have you with us today and every day. Today, Pastor Mike reminded us that there's really nothing we can do to earn God's grace. Our limited understanding of God's ways can make this difficult to grasp, but the more we spend time studying the depths of Scripture, the clearer that picture becomes. That's our goal here at Focal Point. We're dedicated to providing everyone who listens with a biblical foundation for life. This month, we're featuring a book that will help you understand God's grace in an even deeper way. It's called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. If you're struggling with your faith, or if you know someone who has doubts about God, then this will be a helpful guide for understanding how to be saved and our constant need for grace. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks for your support today. 
To make a donation, call us at 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. Now, these are people just like you who listen to the program and want to spread God's truth around the world. Our partners help us minister to others by providing free access to all of Pastor Mike's sermons, devotionals, and videos, and helping cover our radio airtime costs. So sign up today, won't you, when you go online to focalpointradio.org or call us at 888-320-5885. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again on Tuesday as we continue our study through 2 Samuel right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.